1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? In a time-traveling experiment, I am here today with Blaine Dowler and Trey Hooks. Uh, time-traveling being that uh, we recorded a week ago for an episode of uh, 100 movies, or 100 films, excuse me. Uh, well, you know, the, the Academy Awards show that... Blaine and Trey do, uh, and that's yeah, going to air about years 100 films. There you go. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I have it. I, I subscribe to it, uh, <laughs> but we recorded for that last week, and that's going to air about a year from now. And this is going to air about probably about a month or so from when we record. So it is some sort of a time traveling thing. Uh, thanks, guys, for coming on with me. I appreciate it, and thanks for making the time because we were originally supposed to record both in, at the same uh, sitting and my schedule made it impossible to do that so i appreciate you making the time to come back again our pleasure yeah always happy to discuss kurosawa yeah so previously and i trey i don't think you were there with us i think it was just blaine and i did uh right we did uh i'm sorry Olson, i'm just uh, rashomon rashomon I'm, I'm just my my mind isn't quite with us yet so i apologize for that but we did rashomon and i'll be totally honest, I found that to be a fascinating movie. Uh, I found it to be kind of riveting as I watched it. Uh, and I don't remember exactly how we came down on the review, but I'm pretty sure we were very positive on both sides. Uh, so I became much more curious to watch this. I had previously seen The Seven Samurai. That was the, my exposure to Kurosawa. But, you know, throughout my life, I always heard that Yojimbo was the source material for A Fistful of Dollars, which is uh, you know, a movie I grew up with and, and have great fondness for, uh, and previously had reviewed with Andy Leyland. So if you look back into the archives, you could find that review. Uh, so I really, really was curious to watch this one. Uh, and I watched it on HBO Max because they have quite a few Kurosawa films available for you. And uh, I'm not going to get into my take on it just yet, but I'm going to ask if either of you were exposed to this previously or... Did you watch it just for this show? You can go ahead and go first, Blaine. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is actually my 
my second viewing of the the movie. So my first viewing was a few years ago, just because I don't know if you guys are aware, but the Canadian distribution of the Criterion Collection is not great. So while they are typically the most expensive physical media you'll find in the U.S. because they have a, you know, they're the most expensive to produce because everything they put into their bonus features. Um, that price difference is even wider in Canada. So when I go to the States, I tend to stock up, and this was one of the stockpiles. So I grabbed uh, a whole bunch of Kurosawa in one of the Barnes & Noble sales. I'm going yeah. to throw, get thrown of... off by that a little bit. Just just take a little detour. Uh, from where you live, how difficult is it to travel to the United States, and how often do you do that? Um, I've... Well, now it's less often. I actually used to come down about once a year, uh, obviously by flying for an annual business conference, but I am no longer part of that business. So mm-hmm. that's okay. not particularly relevant, uh, relevant anymore. But yeah, these days it would just be vacation. And again, that would be flight because from where I live, I would drive straight south for about eight hours to reach the border. And then if I were to keep going south, I'd eventually get to Denver. So you kind of have an idea of geographically where I'm at. Okay. I was just, just curious because, you know, I, you know, geographically, I'm not that far from Canada, but I've only been there twice in my life. So, you know, it's, I was just wondering how often you would, how often you'd make that trip. But so, okay, (laughs) going back to the, the, the actual point that we were meant to discuss. Uh, so you, you, first saw this a few years back when you uh, when you had obtained a copy of it and what did you think at that time what was your initial impression um, I enjoyed it it is a bit of a slower pace but that's not a bad thing in my mind I mean my favorite movie of all time is 2001 a space Odyssey if I couldn't enjoy slow movies that would not be the case that, I think one of my is... favorite jokes about that was on the uh, out of theaters podcast when they said it was uh, Stanley Kubrick's complete history of human evolution presented in real time. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and and people make fun of Star Trek, the motion picture as being slow. But uh, okay, so before we get too deep into this, Trey, what was your uh, first exposure? Uh, uh, probably a couple of years ago, um, maybe even uh, last year. Time kind of mixes up, but. Um, I, I started a viewing project where um, I kind of just every um, week pick a different decade and watch something from the most popular list um, on Letterboxd. And um, it wasn't my first Kurosawa film. I had seen Seven Samurai and um, Rashomon before uh, Yojimbo. But uh, so 2019, 2020 is probably the first time I saw it. Okay, and that would again be before we knew we were going to uh, right re- review it. So, and and I, I always have kind of a different view of a movie when I'm just watching it for enjoyment or when I'm watching it to review. You know, I take a much closer look at you know how it's made and you know the choices and that type of thing when I'm when I know I'm going to review it. Whereas if I'm just watching it for enjoyment, I kind of let the movie pull me in and try and you know, just totally immerse myself into it. Uh, so there, you know, there is a different viewing process. 
did you find that it was different at that point and you know what did you think then um it it was uh, somewhat and i i don't want to tip my hand too much about the rating but i i, I did enjoy it um it it was a film to where um when we had discussed doing this i had watched it recently enough that i was kind of like oh i feel like i have just seen this movie you know um uh but but um i i did enjoy it i actually like it quite a bit so all right cool uh yeah you know as i said i was i was watching it more to review than to, for enjoyment actually and you know but the two don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive right uh but i i kind of found this to be a little bit more slow moving than I expected uh, there is an issue with the time that's passed since they recorded it, it is since they filmed it rather it's a 1961 film uh, done in black and white and I'm watching it you know, with subtitles so very often when you're watching something with subtitles it makes it a little bit harder to truly take in the level of the acting performances uh, because you're, you know, you're reading subtitles. <laughs> you're not focusing quite as much on the faces of the actors and the body movement and that type of thing. Uh, trying to get past that as I watched this, I thought that the acting seems a little bit over the top to me. Now, I know it's, again, a different style of movie making, a different country and a different time. But it almost felt, as I was watching it, like a stage performance where they had to really, truly emote or the people in the back wouldn't see what they were doing. And that doesn't always translate as well to film when I've seen that type of thing. And I, again, I believe I saw that in this. Uh, and I'm curious what you guys thought about the acting, if there was anybody who you know, stood out to you as being especially good or especially bad or you know, just overall what you thought. I, I think that's a fair criticism um i i would balance it with and i'm <clears throat> i'm going to preface this and say i'm not an expert on japanese culture by any means um but i felt like we were getting a lot of uh stock characters um but i i think the over exaggeration was on purpose i think we have a lot of comedy performances in a really dark film um so you know uh, some of uh, some of the um uh characters that you know stuck out to me um was um i'm sorry i'm kind of glancing at wikipedia because i can't remember names in a different language um but you know oren sebe's uh wife um kind of the strong but uh duplicitous wife who controls um the the husband um the younger brother of Yushatora, kind of the one that they call um the halfwit i i enjoyed his performance um i liked the constable in it though those were all kind of more comedy performances that i thought they didn't mock the story, but they kept it from becoming bleak. I get what you're saying, but and and now I'm going to kind of use use your point to kind of shift over a little bit. To I love the premise of this movie, 
and it's the same premise in A Fistful of Dollars. It's the same premise in Last Man Standing. And then I, I know there's other versions of this that I, I'm unaware of. But I love the premise of the stranger coming into town uh, where there's warring factions and kind of playing them each against each other for his own advantage. Uh, I think I think it's it, it, it's simple and yet brilliant at the same time in its own way. Uh, and I think it, I, I as I was telling you guys before we started to record, I grew up watching a fistful of dollars. I've probably seen it a dozen times easy. Uh, and. I always felt like Clint Eastwood always seemed smarter than everyone else in the movie. And he always seemed like he had a, a just, you know, like a total plan as to where he was going. Even when similar to this, when he ends up getting, you know, beaten, uh, you know, it still feels like he's in control even when he's losing. And there were only a couple of little comedic moments in that. It really didn't have much in the way of lighthearted because I think it's a very heavy storyline. So I don't know that putting comic elements and comic relief to that level was really doing themselves any favors. That's a little more consistent with the source material. This was unofficially based on Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest with his Continental Op, and he had some very dark-toned humor in a lot of his writings. I haven't read that particular novel, but it just would be consistent with the tone I've read in other novels by Hammett with that lead. So, you know, the, the classic hard-boiled detective, you know, kind of the, the Maltese Falcon era, but uh, really more of a Pat Novak for higher style, if you know that radio show where they're being sarcastic and sly. So that that was in the DNA from the start. So when Sergio Leone uh, in took his version and brought in the same scene, that the scene where he gets beaten was brought in from Hammett's The Glass Key. So that was the the unique combination that Kurosawa came up with without paying for and then sued Sergio Leone for adapting it without paying him for it. Mm-hmm. That that was part of the source that was there from the start. So I don't think it's so much adding to comedy as just reflecting the source material accurately. So this is just Kurosawa style. And we even had the, the same comment when we were talking about Rashomon for 1950, that there is some overacting here. A lot of the, the Japanese acting at the time, the film industry was still new enough that it was inspired by that theatrical performances. And I've seen in a lot of uh, the Japanese comedic effect stuff, especially in the anime section, they do tend to go over the top when they're aiming for comedy. That is just the national style. Right. So I think that's what we're seeing here is that the style of comedy that is typical uh, in Japan and in the, the Japanese films and productions just may not play for you as someone who is more used to the American and European styles. I would say that's probably an accurate take on it. Um, it, it just it felt a little out of place at times. And I don't remember having that in Rashomon. I don't remember there being particularly any comic relief in that movie. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of comedy, but we did mention the overacting. Yes, and, and now that you say that, I do remember uh, basically similar to what I said today that we talked about the possibility of it being uh, the you know the transference of styles from stage to screen, uh, and how you know that 
takes a little while for the industry to adapt to that. And that, that's all well and good. I'm, I'm kind of cool with that. Uh, but just the same, uh, you know, thinking of a fistful of dollars, I can only think of really two comedic moments off the top of my head. And, and one is, uh, when, when Clint Eastwood goes over to the, the men who, uh, are trying to abuse him and, and demands that they apologize to his mule. Uh, and the other is when he, you know, says, uh, get five graves ready. My mistake six after he kills all the people. Uh, that's, that's like the only two comic relief moments that I can think of. Uh, and I think it served that movie well, that movie. And again, I don't want to get too much into that cause we already did review it, but that kind of had a feel of being a low budget movie, but it also had a feel of being grim and gritty and very well put together. This also felt very low budget, quite frankly. Uh, and it, it just seemed sometimes like the comical characters, which Trey appreciated. And I, I always like when we can kind of get a different perspective on this. The, the characters that Trey appreciated, to me, took me out of the realism of it. Yeah, I, I can see that. I also appreciated it. But again, I was coming in with perhaps more familiarity and some more expectations for the level of comedy, partly because this is also not my first viewing. So while that scraped, a, you know, kind of rubbed me the wrong way the first time I watched it, now that I've seen more Kurosawa films and more Japanese films and realized, no, that is just a cultural difference in the way it's made. I found it less abrasive the second time through. Okay. Now, now I will. Sorry. Go ahead, Paul. No, no, please. I was going to say, talking about performances, I did love um, Toshiro Mifune in this because, you know, having the baseline of Seven Samurai and Rashomon, I felt like he basically played the same type of character in those two films. And here, where he's not kind of the raving, laughing wild man, where he's kind of playing an older, definitely more cagey character, you really get a better sense of his range. I, I thought his performance was, you know, it, I think intentionally so even when they made the movie, but it was the standout performance. Uh, I thought he, he rose above the rest of the cast. The rest of the cast where I thought sometimes they seemed a little goofy, sometimes they felt like they were overacting, I did feel like he had his part pulled in. He was a little bit more stoic. He, he underplayed it at times. And I, I, I have to say, I did enjoy his performance. Um, the, the only performance, and I don't want to say perform, the only performance that struck me as odd, and it struck me as odd because of a line of dialogue, um, was, um, the, uh, the brother with the pistol, I, I'm like I said, I'm going to struggle with names, so I, I apologize. Jo join the club, Trey. Um, <clears throat> because on the one hand, I appreciated how dangerous a pistol would be in feudal Japan and how cocky that would make someone. So I felt like the actor played that well. But before we ever see him, the innkeeper um, uh, tells um, Sanjuro, because that's 
to share Mifuni's character's name, um, about the younger brother. Because the younger brother really ends up being kind of the fly in the ointment in most of um, Sinjuro's plans. He says um, he, he has the face of a lamb, but it belies the wolf underneath. And the actor plays the character with a permanent sneer on his face. I was like, um, I'm not seeing the face of the lamb. All I'm seeing is the wolf. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that 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 we can uh, argue on the casting. I guess. Well, this he was actually contracted for the Human Condition Part Three, and the director of that one decided, no, we're going to wait for you to finish this because uh, that actor uh, Tatsuya Nakade, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Had if been you, kind if, of typecast. If you're not, no one can tell you that you're not. No one on this broadcast can. He, had, he yeah, okay. He, so he had been, he type- had been typecast, and this is a departure from his typical role. So the director of the Human Condition said, "No, it's important that audiences can see your range. We will wait for you to finish that one, but I want you in my movie." And when we discussed this on 99 Years 100 Films, looking at 1961, these came out as the two highest-rated films of the year on Letterboxd and on the IMDb with human condition part three coming in at number one. I know Jimbo at two. So Tatsuya Nakadai is the star of both of those films in two very different roles. It's, it's interesting that they come in so high. And I wonder if it isn't people such as ourselves who are, you know, fans of the art form and seeking to, you know, kind of increase our own, knowledge of the history and, and to, to, you know, to appreciate what's been uh, placed out there as, as, you know, seminal works. Uh, because it seems to me like that would be your target audience for this movie. I don't think, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't think that any of the three of us would could say to our wives, Hey, let's watch a movie for fun tonight. I've got your Jimbo here and have our wives be on board for it. And and to take this further and, and risk being stereotypical, you know, Blaine, you know, your your wife is of Asian descent. And I still don't see her as enjoying this the same way that that, you know, somebody might just decide, you know, going just to the movies for the sake of going might. And I hope that isn't offensive that I said it that way. But I'm just saying I'm just saying that if you're not a big movie fan, I don't see this as something you'd seek out. No, there there are Kurosawa films I would watch with my wife, but she is not a fan of slow movies. And this is on the slow side. So, and yeah, and that's, I think that's more what I'm chance. getting at. And, and I think I, I you know, I'm, I'm phrasing it clumsily, but I think, you know, somebody who's younger and isn't a movie historian of sorts. And and I hate to, it, it almost sounds, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm placing us up on some sort of pedestal to call us movie historians because we're fans of the, of the art form. I, and, and I think that's a fair take on it. Uh, but if you aren't, I don't see you seeking this out. No, I, I, I think that's fair. I, at least Joe Jimbo, I think, benefits from being um, on the short list of films that people um, would hear about when it comes to, you know, 
even today, Kurosawa is still thought of as like one of the top ten directors of all time in most circles. But you know how I'll use Scorsese for an example. You know, if you say Scorsese to someone, you know, they're most likely to think, you know, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver. Not many people are going to think New York, New York, right? Um, (laughs) You know, Kurosawa, I think the three films that people know him for are Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, and Rashomon. And those three, A, because they're they're good films, but also – They've been so duplicated, you know, when when you guys covered Rashomon, you covered all the different times that story structure was lifted, you know, Seven Samurai spawned the entire uh, Magnificent Seven series of films. And, um, you know, this, of course, inspired A Fistful of Dollars, which itself was the beginning of its own um, uh, trilogy. So I I think people seek it out because of its – because of its pedigree and what it influenced. Right, and and that's exactly the reason why I had interest in watching it. Uh, you know that, and, and coming off of Rashomon, which uh, you know, again, I, I didn't re-listen to that, and and it's been a little while, but I'm pretty sure Blaine and I were uh, very strong in our praise of that movie. So yeah, I think off- it came down between Jaws one and two for us, depending on how we thought we'd you'd have a hard or how well you thought people would accept. The subtitles and whatnot. Right. I think we were leaning more to the Jaws one than two, but yeah. Yeah. So based upon that, it made me more, you know, that combined with my fondness of a fistful of dollars, made me want to view this more and and really, you know, take it in. And I found it to be slow moving. I found it to be, you know, I, I found that the story-wise, I, I actually, you know, and this may be a cultural thing, but I found it to be confusing. And I kind of know the basic so- story structure for obvious reasons, but I still didn't feel like it was really made clear. When he was taking advantage of the different factions, it wasn't always clear how he was going about it. Even as his plan started to come to fruition, it didn't feel to me like, like they really made it clear what he was doing and how he was doing it. It was just, you know, I'm setting something up so that there's going to be a, a fight, and then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to kill a bunch of people. That's all it felt like to me. And that, that isn't the the master, uh, you know, manipulator who's, who's taking care of things. Uh, you know, at some point, he needs to be setting the two against each other more than going in there himself. And I didn't feel like that was made very clear in this movie. And perhaps that's my own shortcoming. Maybe you guys, you know, did feel more clear with that. You know, it, that felt clear to me. What I I think what can be confusing about the film is what's going on in the town. I mean, I think you can get the shorthand of there's two warring factions um, and, you know, um, you you had a gang boss's right hand split off because he thought he was going to inherit the business and he's not. I, I think that comes through um, a, a lot of the a lot of the subplot about the seconds, you know. Um, Sebe had the mayor in his back pocket and the mayor 
um, was the sake brewer in the town. And um, when his lieutenant split off from him, he paired up with the silk merchant who also decided to sell sake. You know, the, the, the political nuances of all of that, I don't get. Um, it, I, I got the sense that, um, Sanjiro felt like Sebe was the weaker target. So he started dismantling Sebe's organization first. I, I think he made a big deal about getting paid that big rate purposefully so Sebe would lose his number one swordsman. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think he thought that all Yushitoba had in his corner was his dim-witted brother. Um, and then I felt like he started putting them the two um, against each other, but he couldn't foresee the magistrate coming to town, and there was a third brother that he didn't know about, and that's when his plans um, stall. Even then, I feel like he recovers well enough you know, if um, the gambler, because I don't know a better term for him, if the gambler and his wife and son had gotten out of town when he told them to, um, he would have avoided the beating. Um, but there were just elements that he couldn't um, couldn't control, and I think some of it may be. And this is funny saying it when you think of how they're all dressed because of the culture, you know, maybe more urban versus rural. Maybe he thought, you know, in a more sophisticated um, city, they would have been smart enough to run when he told them um, when he told them to run. But I I felt like he had control. I felt like he was doing well with what he knew. But it was that classic, you don't know what you don't know, and that's what tripped him up. Interesting that you mentioned maybe an urban setting would be more appropriate since the source novel was actually an organized crime boss who brought in gangs to help him end a labor dispute. So it was, at the time that Shilhamid published Red Harvest in the 30s, it was contemporary. And here they, they backed it up. Um, but yeah, I just to, to answer Paul's question, I did feel he was in control, particularly since there's a line of dialogue early on where the restaurateur is saying, why are you here? Get out of town. Don't you see it? And he said, yeah, I see this town. It's a mess. There's a lot of people here who deserve to die. And I'm going to make sure that happens. He doesn't say he's going to kill them. He's just going to he just says this town would be better off if a lot of these people are dead. And I'm going to make that happen. See, and I, I think that was his his plan was to put them against each other, and it was only the appearance of the gunfighter that really took the scales that that threw his plans off the rails and made him have to readjust. Honestly, it, it's not that I ever felt he wasn't in control, you know, except for you know when 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 he's not. Uh, but it, it was that I didn't feel like as his plans came to fruition that I understood exactly how he was playing everybody. Got it. Yeah, it, there's no moment where George Papard's chomping on the cigar, going, "I love it when a plan comes together." Yeah, I, I would, I would have liked that. to seen just a little bit more exposition in that regard, uh, or, or just a, a little bit more of a setup where you see what he's doing and you don't understand why, and then you 
have you know that that aha moment when uh, when when all of a sudden it comes to to fruition and you say oh that's why he did this I didn't feel like we had that in this movie yeah if we either had that setup or if we had um, even just when the restaurateur is going well, what are you doing if he just said yeah I'll be here four days and it'll be over in four days and then you know you have that four day timeline and it's done something that that says he knows what's happening in advance I, I i get what you're saying there i'm i actually wonder how you would have responded to this film if you were not so familiar with a fistful of dollars and that's because that's I the question i keep asking myself too <laughs> yeah because i strongly suspect what's happened is we've got a well-made movie aimed primarily for the japanese audience of 1961 which was adapted to better fit the North American audiences as a fistful of dollars. So your familiarity and appreciation of what is essentially a remake that is tailored to you would perhaps make it harder to, to really engage with the original, which is not going to be as satisfying for you because it's not made for the audience you grew up in. And, and that's what played with my expectations a bit as well, because while I have never seen an out-and-out out remake of Rashomon, I've seen that story structure used many times, as we discussed when we reviewed it. Uh, so I kind of ex- knew what to expect with that one, and yet it lived up to my expectations. This one, I kind of knew what to expect, and it did not. It, it's, it's been a while since I've seen fistful of dollars um were there more action set pieces in it in this because i think one of the things that might throw someone because you know if you've seen seven samurai and then if you instantly think kurosawa equals samurai film um because this this struck me um both times i saw it what few action sequences there are are quick they were quick but i i didn't feel that the action sequences let me down i mean they did show uh i i, I can never get it was a senjuro i got to try and actually yeah. use, use the, they did show him to be you know a master uh swordsman and even though the the uh you know the, the setup it wasn't necessarily the most realistic because there were times when he'd you know turn and whatever and it you know it, sometimes when you have one guy facing you know a, a mob it's not always totally realistic the way they choreograph it but they right. did they did i did walk away with it saying okay i understand why this guy is a force of nature as far as they're concerned uh so that you know the, the action sequence was satisfying to me um I, I did have issues with the pacing in between the action sequences. I, I felt like it really, really slowed down some points, uh, and, and it became plotting a little bit. And, and, and it was a little harder to kind of keep my interest as keen as I wanted it to be. You know, especially when you're reading it in subtitles, and it's like, okay, come on, let's keep moving here. Let's let's actually have some payoff to things. And that kind of goes to what I was saying earlier, where I didn't feel like they really let me know why he was doing certain things and how they came to fruition. Well, Kurosawa doesn't take shortcuts. And, you know, I I could see that being a bit of a detriment to the film. 
Um, so, you know, um, when the when the magistrate is in town for you know three or four days, you know, it, it is true that what fifteen twenty minutes go by in the film while the magistrate's in town. And everybody's marking their time waiting for the magistrate to leave. So um, there probably could have been something done um, to, to give that slow boil, but also trim that up a bit. I, mean, I can't believe I'm talking about trip, you know, critiquing the editing of Kurosawa, but I, I, I can't <laughs> see how... Uh, you know, I haven't even directed like a high school play, but that's besides the point. Um, well, it's, I, it's, I, one, it's one thing to be able to see and critique things. It's another thing to do, be able to do it ourselves. None of us, none of us are saying we can do anything related to film that's better than Kurosawa did. That doesn't mean but, we can't look at it and, and, and objectively say, well, I think I would have enjoyed it more if he had done this differently. And to support Trey's point. Fistful of Dollars is 11 minutes shorter than Yojimbo, and when Yojimbo was first brought to North America and aired, they cut a full 35 minutes out of it. I don't know how well it, it plays with those 35 minutes missing, but the experts in the field seem to agree that it could have been trimmed a little. Now, I, I, you know, I walk away from this, and again, you know, I, I, I hate to keep talking me 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 but i consider myself to be a very big movie fan i, I love watching movies and i and I, I think i have an appreciation and and blaine you and i have done in particular some some old movies where we've walked away at the end and said well if you are a fan of movies or if you're willing to watch things in black and white or if you're willing to watch a silent movie then this is something you'll enjoy and walking into this knowing what a seminal work it it you know, its reputation leads you to believe. I, I almost feel like an embarrassment that I couldn't enjoy it as much as I thought I should. No, but, but, but don't, don't. Um, there's, I, I've, I've jokingly said this several times, but it, in the recording of our show, and I promise I won't take us too far down a tangent. Um, in about seven months, we're going to hit when 2001 A Space Odyssey comes out. And on the mic, uh, I'm going to have to talk with Blaine about why that movie just doesn't land with me. And I hope the podcast doesn't end there, but it might end there because I know what a big <laughs> fan he is of the film. But 2001 A Space Odyssey, I, I completely understand Blaine's love of the film. And it just doesn't resonate with me the same way. And that is one to where, you know, I am, I, I understand why it is beloved, why it is. I understand how well crafted of a film it is. And I just don't get out of it what other people do. Well, and, there, there is a difference. And I, I've, I've mentioned this in the past. There is a difference be, between being to, able to appreciate the quality of something that's well made and objectively say this is a quality product and what your enjoyment level is. They don't always correspond. There are certain movies that I, I can sit here and, you know, Citizen Kane, I'll, I'll use that as my example. I could sit here and say that that's a masterpiece the way it's put together. But I don't necessarily really enjoy watching it. It's not a movie where I'd say, hey, I haven't seen Citizen Kane in a year. Let me put this on again. It's not that type of movie. 
No, and everyone will be hit and miss. Well, a few months after the year 2001 comes out, we'll hit a couple other Best Picture winners that do not land for me. I've got the IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time list opened. Those two films that don't land for me are in the top three. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I suspect we'll survive the 2001 conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So... But but that said, when I look at this one, and this is where, where I, I kind of feel like I'm somehow missing something, when I look at this one, I don't walk away saying, oh, this feels like a masterpiece. I walk away saying, you know, oh, it feels like a masterpiece even though I didn't get the visceral enjoyment out of it. I don't feel like I'm saying that. I feel like I'm saying I don't understand why this is a masterpiece. I think the story again is brilliant the whole playing the two towns uh, the two factions against each other uh but that's more based on the source material than it is on kurosawa i feel like the movie moves slow uh i feel like the acting for the most part is a little over the top and some of it may be you know that this is 60 years old and you know and and from another culture and and it's not hitting with me but then rashomon did so it still kind of bothers me. So Yeah, I mean, if we look at um, the three Kurosawa films that Trey's already mentioned, just while I've got the top 250 open, Seven Samurai comes in at the 19th greatest film of all time. And then Kurosawa has three consecutive films. This is 128, Ron is 129, and Rashomon is 130. So, yeah, they are respected but i get why you're saying okay why is this movie on the list when you have no problems with say the presence of rashomon or seven samurai mm-hmm. yeah it's it's somehow its brilliance is a little bit lost on me and i'm sorry to say that so i i just listened to your back to the bins with chris tyler where you guys reviewed what if paul and it's a great episode but i'm just wondering are are you wishing that when so, uh, when Sanjuro threw the stick up in the air, it pointed a different way in the fork in the road. <laughs> It'd be interesting <laughs> to see what it, what story it would have led us to. Uh, this is, <laughs> thank you for that observation. Uh, I uh, like uh, just another thought, and I'm bringing back to I don't even remember which one of the two of you brought it up. Uh, no, I guess I, I guess you both kind of discussed it a little bit, but I didn't give my point. I think. It was a good choice to make this a period piece, quite frankly. Uh, I think that A Fistful of Dollars benefits from it being a period piece. I think that a movie of this nature, if you, if you make it in current times, it's probably not likely to age well. So I do think it was a good idea to, you know, to put it, place it in you know, feudal Japan. Uh, but on the other hand... You know, again, maybe there's some cultural differences that just make that seem a little almost comical to me. Well, well, even uh, even Last Man Standing um, was done as a period because it was set during Prohibition. You and I wonder if that might be an effort to bring it back to the source material, though. It it may be it may be, um, but because. For for the story to work, you need to be able to have the concept of warring gangs on such a level that they're controlling a small town. You, you know, um, 
I'm not saying that you couldn't do it today, but, you know, I, I think if you tried to do it today, you know, it would be some, like if you tried to do it in America did it today, it would probably be some small southern town to where maybe two meth gangs are, you know, mm-hmm. a, but a one gas station type of town, you know. Um, yeah, well, you say like meth gangs, I'm thinking maybe place it in Mexico or something like that. Yeah. But uh, it would be interesting, and I, you know, sometimes these these things have been inspirational to movies, and we don't even realize it. It'd be interesting to see if you took this concept and made it into a futuristic, you know, mm. science fiction type setting. Yeah, I think the key is that it has to be some sort of frontier where established law enforcement is not up to the task. When you have that one constable in this town and one constable is not going to stop these guys why he's not able to call for reinforcements we don't really know but i think that's the key so between you know the prohibition era where sometimes there was just enough corruption in the police services that they could keep going because prohibition era the people who provided alcohol were making a lot of money that's that was just it so. Well, yeah, I, I think, you know, you get to the point where you say, OK, there is, you know, this is a small town and there are larger governments. You know, if you place it in the United States, it's a small town. But then you have the, you know, the town, the city, the state, the you know, the country. But all of those bigger entities just might be unwilling to help. It, you know, there might be a little element of, well, what's in it for us if we send you aid to clear this up? Or, yeah, or, you know, or, or some we, sort of jurisdictional issues, but yeah, you or we, mean we can send you help, but as soon as we, I'm sorry, I don't mean to talk over you. We we, oh, you no know, we, we we could send you help, but as soon as we leave, it's going to just come back again anyway. So why bother? You know, I, yeah, I think you have, could be to have some reason why. Yeah, you're not. There's you have to have some reason for vigilante justice to be the solution. Yeah. And I think and, that is the key more than the era. Or the location. Well, I, but but I don't I don't think that any of the versions of this movie fail in that respect. I do think no. you, you do feel they're on their own. End of story. There is no overriding government that's going to come in uh, and and save things. Well, and it's or, or as you said, Paul, it's it's too far away. So you know, how long did it take the magistrate to come and check on things? And they knew about it in enough in enough advance to put a truce. And it was easy enough to send people to kill somebody in another town to lure him away, right? So um I but I I like I said, I I, com- I completely understand um uh your um criticisms and there there are some translation problems with it, you, you know. Um Sometimes gambler is used to mean gambler, and sometimes gambler seems to mean gangster. And like mm-hmm. I said, the the gang politi- the gang politics are clear enough to follow the overarching story, I think. But you can't. I didn't really get the nuances of them. Um, while I like the constable as a comedy character, if you didn't tell me he was a constable, he's not doing anything to act like a constable. So like, you know, 
did constables back then call out the time? Because that's all I see him doing. You, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I definitely agree that there are translation problems. You know, it just it's just as I'm like thinking this all over, I could see the storyline developing a little bit where, you know, the stranger that comes into the town manipulates things to have the two gangs face off against each other, then steps back and somehow presents the larger government with a reason why it benefits them to come in. And then as he steps back, he lets the the forces of the larger government come in and wipe out the two gangs. And then as it ends, he, you know, basically he's running the, the town now. It's just just a, a variation on it that just occurs to me. Uh, probably way, way oversimplistic, because last I checked, I am not Dashiell Hammett. <laughs> what did you yeah. think of, of the score in this? this? I enjoyed, as apparently did Irish television producers, because they used it for a series in the 1990s. Oh, did they? But, I, didn't, I was unaware of that. Yeah, they, they took the major melodies of the score and used it not for a Yojimbo series. They just used it as the theme song in some other series because apparently they hadn't renewed the copyright on the score in Ireland. So it's like, hey, here's great music that's free. Let's slap it on our stuff. It, it's, it felt to me like it got a little, much like some of the acting performances, like the score got a little over the top at times. Well, I wonder if... I wonder if um, they played it on set or how it was scored because I'm I, I appreciate scores, but I can't talk about them like you know uh, you and Scott Gardner have. Oh, but, it's Scott, not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm more like you. But but like I I liked that his theme matched his swagger. So, I mean, it almost looked like he was strutting to his theme when he's walking back and forth between the two gangs. That I appreciated. So whether the composer saw that swagger and managed to write a good tune that was in step with it, or the composer wrote it and Mifuni heard it and was able to kind of match it in his stride, I liked that. Fair enough. Um, I'm at this point. I'm kind of at a loss unless you guys have any other points to make on this one. The only other thing I might point out is the the cinematography. This is the second time Kurosawa worked with the same cinematographer that he had for Rashomon, who actually said Kurosawa was frustrating to work with because he doesn't he doesn't necessarily tell you what he's looking for. He just spends a lot of time in pre production. And when you're doing your work, he will just stand over your shoulder watching you. And when you're done, he will just step in and change things he doesn't like. So he's kind so, of the anti-Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> who would stand there looking over the shoulder and say, no, 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 you're doing this wrong. I want it done exactly this way. And if you can't do it exactly this way, I'll go get a different cinematographer. Yeah, whereas uh, yeah, Kurosawa's more just, that's not what I want, so I'll do it myself. And I can see why Kurosawa has the reputation he has. Going through that top 250 list, he's actually got six movies on it, with uh, Ikiro and High and Low coming in above this. So, yeah, I think the cinematography worked out well. I, I I think what we are seeing is that we have a an auteur. So he has a very distinct style in his direction. And the way that style 
came together in this story for you just didn't land. So I don't personally, I, while I enjoy it, I wouldn't put it in the top 250 of all time, but I do see why others do. Now, just, you know, going slightly afield here, I know one of the movies that's on uh, HBO Max that's available, and this has not soured me enough to not want to see more Kurosawa, by the way. Uh, one of them is Throne of Blood, which I really have heard precious little about, and I'm curious to see that one now. Okay, sir, there was a blip of the Skype. Which was the title? Throne of Blood. Oh, yes, that one is good. It's actually a, a Shakespeare adaptation. Um, I forget whether... Throne of Blood and Redbeard were, were Hamlet and Macbeth. I think Throne of Blood was Macbeth. Right, so I'll probably be giving that a shot in the near future as well. When, you know, sometime, sometime when my wife isn't around, because I know she's not going to want to watch it with me. Uh, but uh, that's that's a story for another day. So I'm going to give my review, my rating on this one first, because I think I'm, sure. I've been the most critical, and then I'll see where you guys fall. Uh I think as a film fan, I felt the need to see this. And even if I heard my review of this, I, you know, if, if I, somebody else was giving the review I just gave, I don't think that would have soured me on wanting to see for myself and make a judgment for myself. So I think if you are a fan of film and filmmaking and film history and you are curious to see this, I'm going to rank it as a Jaws 2 for that reason. Uh, if you are not, if you are just somebody who wants to sit down and get immersed into a movie uh, and and just enjoy what's on the screen, I'm going to give it a Jaws 3 at that level, and I'm going to say you'd be better off watching A Fistful of Dollars or Last Man Standing. I'll go next. Um, I'm going to give it a Jaws 2. Um, it... It wasn't naturally rewatchable to me, meaning um, when I when I was like, "Hey, I need to rewatch Yojimbo," I wasn't like, "Yes, let's watch Yojimbo." So I, I can't necessarily give it a high Jaws two, but I think it's um, I think it's a really well made movie. Um, the, the pacing um, didn't impact me as much as um, it did you, Paul. Um, and I did enjoy it with um, uh, with a second viewing. So I'm going to land it squarely in Jaws 2. And I'm also giving it a Jaws 2, perhaps a stronger Jaws 2 than what Trey just described, but still in that Jaws 2 region. Uh, just because I do find, I find it's well-constructed. The story works for me in ways that at least the this particular execution of the story didn't necessarily work for Paul. But, you know, I think we agree on the strength of the premise. It sounds oh, like Paul just nope. was No question at all. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I think it's down to the mechanics, which, so for me, they work a little bit better, but then again, I am very open to a slower pace of film when you have the, the rich cinematography that this one has or some of the editing that you know, you could sit there and analyze not just what's going on, but why are they shooting it this way and why is the, the shot composition this way? So I like having that time to sit down and actually ponder while I'm doing it, which we'll discuss more when we get to the 
2001 episode of 99 Years 100 Films, which is funny we keep telling it when 2001 comes up when it wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they overlooked a lot that year, but we'll get to it. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. that's it for our Your Jimbo episode. I want to thank you both for coming on. I always I enjoy our chances to talk about movies with you guys. Uh, and, uh, Paul, uh, Paul, if I can, one last bit of Is It Jaws uh, business. If you will allow me, since you have canonized the Jaw 19 rating, I'd like to amend my rating of Santa Claus Conquers the Martian to Jaws 19. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, anybody who's a faithful listener now, please uh, take your uh, take your, your charts and change it. That, that's specifically for Gene Hendricks. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. And thanks again for coming on. And, uh, you know, we, we've mentioned uh, Trey and Blaine's podcast on several occasions, and I would strongly recommend that you uh, consider subscribing to it if you haven't already and you are a movie fan because they're hitting on some of the gems and some of the mistakes that uh, I'm not getting to. So I think we, we, make, we make good companion podcasts to each other. Yeah, plus ours is only once a month, so it's not a huge time investment. Yeah, there you go. I'm only twice a month, so we're, we're still good there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thanks again for coming on, guys, and I'm sure we're going to have the opportunity to speak again in the not-too-distant future. Looking and thank, forward to it. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time.